Well, for our time this morning, would you open to John 17? John chapter 17, and we'll look there and finish this chapter and turn, our cor- turn the corner next week into the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. But John 17, and we come to that third section. Let me read it again for you in verses 20 down through 26. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me, that where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me pray. Father, would you just open our eyes to see this truth, to experience this truth, to see the unity and the oneness in the Godhead that we might be one with each other. So God, would you take your word by your Holy Spirit and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you might encourage our heart. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. The theme, of course, as we've mentioned last week together here in this last section, and really all of the Lord's Prayer, is unity. It is oneness. And I reminded you last week that he's not really primarily in any way praying for external unity. He's not even praying at the outset of it for relational unity. He is not praying here for um, organizational unity. Rather, our Lord Jesus, in what we call the high priestly prayer, is praying inwardly. He's praying for a spiritual unity that's based on our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 6.17, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There is unity in our relationship. Now, as we've been tracking here this prayer for a few weeks, he's praying to his heavenly father along three different lines. He's praying first for himself and his glory in 17, 1 through 5. Then secondly, he was praying for his disciples, I sometimes want to say his apostles, in 6 through 19. So he prays for himself first, prays secondly for his disciples in 6 through 19. And we come to this section this morning, he's praying thirdly for all future believers. He is praying 
for you. And he has prayed for you, for me, for us. He's praying for the local church. Now, the, the key central dominating theme here is just one in verses 20 down through 26. He's praying for our unity. Look at verse 21. That they all may be one. And so he prayed for the apostles. He's now praying for the church. He's praying that we would be one. Look at verse 22 again. He says, the glory that you have given me, I've given them that they may be one even as we are one. Says it again. Look at verse 23. I in them, you in me. And then this phrase, that they may become perfectly one. And so, beloved, as we step into this, he's praying for our unity. But as it is in Scripture, it often comes a different way than the unity that we want today that oftentimes is at the expense of truth. But that's the burden. Now, let me, for our time here, reveal to you that there's three aspects of this unity that come out of the text. First, we're going to look at how unity is preserved. Secondly, how unity is proclaimed. And then thirdly, how it's perfected. That's where we're heading. It's preserved. It's proclaimed. In other words, the gospel is going to advance. And then thirdly, unity is to be perfected. So let's look at those together in our time. First, how is unity preserved? How is this unity that he's talked about all through John 17, and here specifically, how is it preserved? In other words, how do we keep at that? What, what grants unity? Where does unity lie? Where's the basis of it? Where's the foundation of this unity? And how does he, in this prayer, before his betrayal and arrest, preserve that unity? Well, it is preserved, and I want to begin, look at verse 20, and I don't want to skip this with you. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, just a little bit of groundwork here. As you come into this, there's three people groups, if you will, here in 20 and 21. You say, well, who are they? Well, look, verse 20, I do not ask for these only. Just stop there. Who's the these only? Obviously, that's the previous section. That's the disciples. From 6 to 19, he was praying specifically for the disciples, what we know as the 12 apostles. Certainly, there were implications all through 6 through 19 for us, but he says in verse 20, I'm not asking for these only. That's one. Secondly, but also for those who will believe in me. And so he's praying for those, not those only, but for those who will believe in me. Who's that? That's you, if you will. That's the church. He's, he's making a distinction here in the paragraph in verse 20. Look again at verse 21. That they may all be one. So he just combines that third group, if you will, for all. He combines the these, those, and the all. Now, you'll note here, look again at verse 20. He says, I'm praying for those who will believe in me, don't miss this, through their word. 
In other words, the unity that he's, gonna, that he's just talked about, he's in his prayer, and now praying, he's praying for you, he's praying for the future, for those who will believe in me, so Christ is the core, Christ is at the center, but he's praying for all who would believe in me through, and then look at verse 20 here, their word. I love that phrase. Who's the their word? Well, he's talking about the apostles, their word, the word that would be given to them. He's talking here about apostolic teaching that they proclaimed that this unity here would be preserved. So whatever we want to say, beloved, at the beginning, unity doesn't come at the expense of truth. Unity here is preserved as they present the Lord Jesus Christ, as they present his word, but you'll understand in verse 20, it's through their word. In other words, there's a historic connection here. There's a historic succession here. In other words, unity doesn't come when no, nobody believes anything, just the opposite. This unity is preserved through their apostolic word. Look back just for a moment in 1515. Okay, let me just show you there. He says, he said, and again to the disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, it's quite a statement, I have made known to you. And he's talking there to the 11 disciples. I've made it known to you. Not everybody writes scripture. The apostles and the prophets do. Not everybody has scripture revealed to them, and we've talked about that many times, but the apostles did. Look at the end of chapter 15 in verse 26, a very specific promise. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you. And again, it's to the 11 at this point. You will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Obviously, the helper comes to all, but the you here, you could see he's establishing his audience with the disciples. In fact, look over at chapter 17 in the very prayer we're in, in verse 8. Again, as he's praying for those disciples in 6 through 19. For I have given them the words that you gave me. So you understand that? Look down at verse 14. I have given them, he's praying to his father, your word. Okay? So this is pretty, pretty clear that unity is preserved because here's why. Because we're linked to the apostles. Because it was the apostles who bore witness to the truth regarding Christ, and they bear witness to that truth through the word of God. Now, look back in verse 20, just so you don't miss this. For those, he prays, who will believe in me, and then again it says it, through the word Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is revealed in the word of God. So we believe through their word. There is, beloved, a historical continuity. The church, let me say it this way, wide implications, is united 
in apostolic doctrine. And when apostolic doctrine is taught, when doctrine is exegeted, when doctrine is explained, when doctrine unfolds the person of God, when doctrine unfolds the person of Christ, when doctrine unfolds the person of the Holy Spirit, there will be unity. Now you say, well, what, what, what do we need to believe to get along? Well, certainly, if you've, as you've walked through me with John, you believe that the Son is co-equal with God. You believe that he's co-existent with God. You believe that he's co-eternal with God. So truth itself centers back on the person of Christ. Look at verse 8 of chapter 17. For I have given them the words, he's praying again, that you gave me. And look what a believer is. And they have received them, that that's a believer. You can't just say I'm a believer. You have to receive this. You received them. They have come to know in truth that I came from you. And then in verse 8, and they have believed that you have sent me. There it is. You received. You've come to know the truth. You believe in the truth. And again, some confuse this verse, this passage on unity, that unity for them, as I mentioned, comes at the expense of truth. But here in verse 20, it's tied to the apostle's word. I mean, liberalism, beloved, as we know it, is a word, liberalism, that compromises truth for the sake of unity. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying there's unity. This unity is preserved when they, Father, will believe in me through that apostolic word that has been revealed. Unity does not come at the expense of truth. Listen, here's a way to say it. The Father, God the Father, we've sung to him this day, gave truth to the Son of God. In fact, Jesus said, I only reveal the words of God. So the Father gave truth to the Son of God. The Son of God, if you will, gave truth to the apostles. The apostles and the prophets then, therefore, gave truth to you, and it's sitting in your lap. Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 2.20, is the chief cornerstone. So we must be united at the core of gospel truth, and that's Christ. And we have a relationship, let me say this, not only with Christ, but the very word that's been revealed about him to us. This is where true unity is preserved. But look at verse 21, he goes on, that they all may be one, Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here is what we spoke about last week. I won't carry on there. The inner Trinitarian relationship that's been granted between the Father and the Son. He's praying that we would be one, and this is what I meant. He's praying not about an organizational unity, not even necessarily out front, your unity one to another, I'll say something. But he's praying that they would be one just as as he prays, Father, you are in me and I in you. He's praying for a spiritual unity that is derived from the unity of the relationship that's bound up in the Trinity, which is perfect oneness. And if you are in Christ, 
This morning, as I said last week, you already have that unity. In other words, you already are one with Christ. You already are one with God. You already have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So before we talk about practice, there's a position here. You already have that. And I would have to tell you that as I've traveled to many, many countries of the globe that speak different languages and different cultures, when I get there, I'm one with them. In fact, people say, Scott, how come there's so many denominations and so many churches? Well, well said and taken, but listen, when you find a true believer, when you find somebody who's received him, when you find somebody who knows the truth, when you find somebody who's believed in the person of Christ, you have great unity with them across the globe, all over the world, in any place. There is already a oneness that way. And so he's praying here that the unity of believers of all cultures, all languages is bound up together already in our position because we're one in Christ. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, you are family together. I mean, this is a local expression of the universal church, but you're connected to one another. You are, because of that foundational unity, to love one another. And to never let anything get in the way that creates disunity because you are to love one another just as the Father loved the Son and the Father said, I am in you and you are in me and they are in us. We are connected. We have a unity together and we share that unity. But it begins at the point of what Christ has done. Now look at this in verse 22. He's on his theme here that the glory... This is an amazing statement that you have given me, underline this, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now what is this? That the glory that you gave to me, certainly the honor that would come in his resurrection, certainly the cross that preceded the resurrection. He said, the glory that you have given me, this is unbelievable, I have given to them. What's he talking about? What glory did he give to you? In other words, he's arguing for the preservation of unity. And you have that because we have this. Amen? We have this. But you not only have that, you have a glory given to you. Now, you say, what is this? And there's much written on this and there's much that could be said. Obviously, you've heard me address the glory of God. The glory of God is the sum of his entire character. And I don't like the word sum because God can never be limited in any way. But when you pack together all of the attributes of God that come to your mind, love, holiness, forgiveness, mercy, gentleness, faithfulness, as you think of all of God's attributes, when you put them all together, the the outcome of all that is that he's glorious. So his glory reflects his weight. It reflects his character. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the glory of God was in the face of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, when you saw Christ, John 1, he was full of glory. And we also know in Hebrews 1 that Jesus Christ is the radiance of his glory. Now you're left asking yourself, well, what glory here did he give to me? Well, listen, beloved, his glory is to be displayed in you, in his redeemed people. In other words, you possess likeness in some measure, in some degree, because you are in him. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? I just mean by that this. Obviously, his glory is infinitely above ours. He's infinitely glorious. But listen, beloved, when you get saved, when he redeems your heart, when he causes you to be born again, he takes out that heart of stone and he puts a heart of flesh in you, right? A heart that's moldable and compliant. He removes the the brittleness, the anger, and he causes you to be born again. And what he's doing from one state of glory into the next state of glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And some of those attributes of God were to put into practice. We're to put into practice just as he's holy in Leviticus, we're called to be holy. Just as he is a God of love, you are called to love one another. Just as he's a God of forgiveness, you're to forgive each other and so forth. So watch this. The glory that the Father gave to me He's given to you. That's why it says in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. So you say, Scott, tie the knots together here. Listen, the preservation of unity is not hard to understand. It comes through the apostolic doctrine to those who have believed in the person of Christ through the word of God. But that unity is preserved, that the glory that the Father gave to the Son in some measure when you're a believer, he gives that to you so that you would preserve the unity. I mean, it'd be one thing for me to say, listen, you just need to get along with each other. You just need to love one another. And I could say that, and that's fair. But it's even greater when you realize that the Father and the Son live in a perfect relationship. That no sin, no greed, no selfishness, no no kind of sin ever taints that perfect relationship. And listen, that's our example. That's the foundation. And he's provided that for us as we come to Christ, as he changes us from one state of glory into the next. It's referring to the believer's participation in the attributes of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So how does it come? Through his word. It comes through our likeness to Christ. Let me make a comparison here. Disunity occurs in just the opposite way where a flock persists in gossip. You see how unity comes now? It's gonna come when we're like the Lord Jesus Christ and we become more like him in every way and we become more merciful and we become more compassionate when we love his truth and we speak the truth in love, but when bitterness comes into a flock or when gossip persists, when there's backbiting, when there's strife, that utterly breaks the heart of God. 
And if you have relationships, even as I speak in here, which I'm unaware of, then you need to get up after this service. Don't break God's heart. The Father and the Son live in perfect oneness and perfect unity, and the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. He's placed part of the living God in you. The Father lives in you. The Son lives in you. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, and that unity in the Godhead should be reflected in the flock, and beloved, and I'm not saying this to, I'm not upset, you, we, can never be known for disunity in this place, ever. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute, but listen, one of the measures that God's blessed us with in 12 years being here is the unity that we share. And I share that both from a leadership standpoint from this pulpit, but I share that from your side as well. You have loved one another. You have given to one another. You have served each other faithfully. Listen, do so because of who God the Father is, who God the Son is. And you say, how do we preserve this unity? In this way, love the Scripture. In this way, be more like Jesus Christ in all of your relationships. That's how. In fact, look what he says in verse 23 again. I in them, in other words, Jesus is in you. He's praying to his Father. And you, Father, in me, that they, that's you, may become perfectly one so that the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So let me just take you to a second principle. Not only how is unity preserved, but secondly, how is unity proclaimed? Well, it's proclaimed in what I just said, but you'll note in verse 23 where it says there that, that so that the world may know that you sent me. It's a tremendous point. Look back at verse 21. He says that they all may be one just as Father you are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that, purpose clause, the world may believe that you have sent me. Has it ever occurred? Let me just say this to you gently. Whether it's our church or your home, You put Jesus Christ on display by your unity. You put Jesus Christ on display in just a moment through your love for one another. And when disunity comes in, you begin to rob God of his glory. In other words, he's praying this for you. He's saying, Heavenly Father, in verse 23, I want them to become perfectly one. Here's why. I want the world to know that you sent me. You would agree with me that the Father sent the Son. In fact, would you go back, just take a, just a, a tour here, just for a moment. Go back to John 3. Let me just show you a few of these places. In John 3, and I'm talking about here that the Father sent me. He wants that to be demonstrated, and really it's been spoken about all over in John. Look at John 3, 33, and then walk through a few of these with me. He says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. 
In other words, he utters the very word of God. He communicated it to the apostles. The apostles communicated it to you. Look at chapter 4 in verse 34. Jesus said to them there at the woman at the well, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Look over at John 5 in verse 24. It's all over. Truly, truly, one of my favorite scriptures, 524. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's eternal life bound up right there. Look down at chapter 5 in verse 30. He says there, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look down at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that that than that of John, of course, the Baptist. For the words that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. It's all over. Look at verse 37. And the Father who has sent me has borne witness about me. Verse 38, and he says, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who has sent me, and on and on it goes. In fact, look over at 629. I'll just show you a few more. 629, it says, Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Look at verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, 638, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. I think you can see this over and over and over again, the fact that the Father sent me. Look back in John 17. He's praying, beloved, that you would preserve that unity because that unity that is amongst us will be proclaimed when you're both one with each other and one with the Father. Then the world will know that you sent me. Isn't that interesting? The greatest of all motivations for missions, the greatest, I've read a number of them, but the greatest of them all, at least from the scripture, is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. He wants us to be such a family here, high school students, that when you see one suffering, you go after him. When you see a girl suffering, you go after her. He wants you to be so one in your homes, in your relationship, in this church. Why? That the world will know that the Father sent the Son. In fact, you know, like I could say, like we're going to give at the Harvest Feast. Today we highlighted student ministries. You'll see that on the card and the envelope is we're also highlighting missions I can give you uh, like these kind of motivations that you, this is what they say in America, America spends more money on dog food than missions. Did you know that? It's the statistics. Not just in the nation, but amongst believing people, more is spent on dog food than world missions. I could marshal 10 more of those statements like that, but listen, I don't need to. The greatest motivation is that the Father loves the Son. 
The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. They are one in the Godhead, and he's praying that we would be unified like the Godhead, that we would be perfected in that unity. Why? So that the world will know that the Father sent the Son. So here, our unity with God and to one another is a prerequisite for our witness. Do you understand that? When you're, and I'm not saying this to anybody, so I'm smiling, see? If churches, let me say it that way, are bickering with one another and arguing with one another and not one with each other, the world isn't going to know that the Father sent the Son. Now, we understand God's sovereign over that. But it's this, beloved, when we're one, they're one, and when we're one, and he's praying for our unity to not only be preserved, but our unity to be proclaimed. It's proclaimed when we are preserving that unity. And that's the thought here, is that the world may know that you sent me. Listen, I woke up this morning, and the scripture that came up to my mind, as well in this context, is Galatians 5.15. If you bite and devour each other, be careful lest you be what? Consumed by one another. That goes in your home. That goes in student ministries. That goes in grace groups. That that goes with your relationships in the community. Listen, I had the privilege this week to step into prayer for a friend of mine. His name's Dr. Peter Erickson. And He's not been feeling well, and so about, I don't know, 12 guys, probably from about seven different churches, stepped in there just to pray with him and for him, just that God would restore him and teach him through the midst of this. But there's unity in that. There's brothers from different churches praying that way. But listen, we need to be unified. And that doesn't mean you sacrifice truth, but it does mean that we have a positional reality that's true of all true believers who center their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. You say, but Scott, I've not arrived yet. I mean, how do I get this more? Maybe in my home with your spouse. Well, look on. Thirdly, okay, how is unity perfected? So how is it preserved? It's preserved when we're one through his word and through our likeness to Christ. It's proclaimed when we live in that reality. But how is it perfected? It's perfected here, thirdly, by understanding the Father's love. Look at this. This is significant to me. Verse 23 and to you. He says, look at, see if you can pick up the language. It's, it's rich. It's deep. We'll never get all of it. So that the world may know that you sent me. And he says, and love them even as you loved me. In other words, he's saying there that God the Father has loved the Son. So you don't think of the the Trinity or the Godhead, or I use that phrase, intra-Trinitarian. They have attributes of personality. God the Father, at the end of verse 23, loved and loves God the Son. Look at verse 24. He says there, Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me that where I am to see my glory that you have given me, 
because you loved me. In other words, he wants, I'll come back to this, you to be in heaven because the Father is going to glorify the Son, right? Not at his incarnation, it was veiled in flesh. You know, as the song sings, the Godhead we see veiled in flesh, incarnate deity, but it was veiled in flesh. But one day, as he ascends into glory, and he did, he wants you, Jesus, to be with him that you may see how much he loved me even before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 26. He says it a third time. I've made known to them your name and will continue to make it known with the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I don't have time, but in John 5.20, it says the Father loves the Son. And I don't think you're going you're gonna to you're, you're agree with that. He loves the Son, 5.20, and he shows them all things that he's done. In John 3.35, it says the Father loves the Son and has given him all things into his hands. So he loves the Son. He shows him everything. That's why the works that Jesus did were the works of the Father. He loves the Son, and he gave him everything. And in 10.17, Jesus said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. In other words, he loved him, and then he went to the point of death, death even on a cross. In fact, how much does God love the Son? I don't, I don't think you would disagree with me. You'd say he loves the Son infinitely. You'd say he loves the Son eternally. You would say he loves the Son intimately. He's the one who the voice came out of heaven, remember at the baptism, and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well, what? Please, this is my beloved Son. But I want you to catch something here that I skipped over. Look at verse 23. You, you just meditate on this. I in them, he's praying, and you, Father, in me, that they, that's the church, you, may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, here's the phrase, and loved them even as you loved me. Stop there just for a second. You loved them even as you loved me. Beloved, God the Father loves you even as he loved the Son. That's what the text says. He loves you even as he loved the son. It's an incredible thought. In fact, look back at chapter 14 just for a second. He exposed that there. He said, whoever in 1421 has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What a great thought there. God the Father loves the Son, and God the Father loves you. Now, some of you might say, isn't the Father offended by our sins? Well, certainly, even before Christ, we understand he hates sins. He hates all sin. But the good news is, beloved, I say it again to you, 
He spent his anger on his son. He spent his wrath on his son by going to the cross and dying in your place. And all the anger that was pent up in a righteous, holy God was spent on his son. And love has replaced his anger. His anger is brief, beloved, the scripture says. But his love is forever. He forgives you. He loves you. Now, some of you don't, you don't always experience that. But he said there in 23, love them even as you loved me. Listen, he can't love you more than he loves you already. It's just mind-boggling. If, beloved, he will never cease loving the Son, he will never, the Father, cease loving you. He loves you like he loves the Son. The Father loves the Son infinitely, and he'll love you infinitely. The Father loves the Son eternally, and he loves you eternally. Okay? That's the truth. Nothing, Romans 8, can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's mind-boggling. You say, well, Scott, what are you talking about here? This. If the Father loved the Son in that way, and the Father loves you in that way as he loved the Son, then I think we ought to love each other, don't you? See, unity comes from the base and the foundation rather than just the practice. You know, let me just say this. We sang the song, and I sang it with all my heart. I forgot what the song went something like, uh, let me see if I can find it. You remember that one? Uh, where we were singing to Jesus that I love you, I love you, and we were singing that song to him, I love you. But listen, we express that from our heart. But I'm telling you that the text says that the Father loves you like he loved the Son. So out of our hearts we pray, we sing, I love you. But you ever realize that the Father loves you? It is the wonder of all wonders. Not only that you can say that you love God and you love Christ, but it is the wonder of all wonders that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in John 14 are expressed to love you in the way that they have loved the Son. Oh, it's a precious Precious truth. In fact, look as we close here in verse 23. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. I love that phrase. It's not that we've arrived. He's praying that we would become that. So beloved, it's a positional truth as we've established, but it's got to be lived out in our practice. It's got to be lived out in our witness. It's got to be lived out in our relationships with one another. Look back at John 13 just for a moment. You know I'm going to take you there. Remember as the Passover began before the feast of the Passover in 13.1 when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father having loved his own in the world. Here's the phrase. He loved them to the end. It just means that he loved you to the max. 
He loved you so much that he went to the cross to die on your behalf. Look over at chapter 13 and 33 there. It says, little children, 1333, a little while I'm with you. A little while you will seek me. He says, just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Listen, beloved, when you walk in unity, when you put into practice this practical love with one another, the world's gonna know that the Father sent the Son. So important is this dynamic that we love each other. Just think, I, remember, I mentioned last week of that guy many years ago in a church that I pastored was introducing him to one of my leaders and the guy couldn't put his hand out to shake his hand. You say, Pastor, what do you think about that? Well, I just, even now, my heart goes out to him. If, if he's never either forgiven that elder or whatever it was, how do you not, when God's forgiven you while we were helpless, while we were yet sinners, while we were godless, while we were alienated from the flock living in Ephesians 2 without no hope, and, and we can't be one with another brother or sister? Listen, you can preach all the great messages you want, but if there's not unity and love in this place, it won't matter. You can even do great evangelistic campaigns, but if you want a campaign that's gonna impact people in the Central Valley, then beloved, I say to you as I say to my own heart, then love one another. I pray that they would say at this church, look how they love one another.